Welcome to the Rebel Physician Podcast, where we are creating a path for physicians to break free from the toxic medical system to create an enjoyable and a sustainable career in medicine. Join us each week as we challenge the status quo, push boundaries, and seek to create a better healthcare system for all. Today, you'll hear an amazing and inspiring and motivating interview with Leah Houston, MD. She practiced emergency medicine across the U.S. for nearly 10 years before becoming an entrepreneur in the physician autonomy and digital privacy space. As a locum tenant physician, she worked in 11 different health systems in three different states. She experienced multiple times firsthand what all physicians experience, the administrative burden on the onboarding and credentialing process the misappropriation of her credentials and professional identity theft committed by one of the health systems she worked at. Because of that, led her to start HPEC, a digital identity and credential data wallet for practicing physicians. But it's more than that. It's a complete identity system that not only manages credentials, it automatically enrolls them in a digital guild and physician-only referral network. We're going to hear all about why this is important in this amazing and inspiring episode. Stay tuned. Well, yeah, we finally are hitting record after our conversation, which already been so good. So if we could start with how you are a rebel physician, which you absolutely are. And then I want to make sure we give lots of time to talk about the rebellious and needed action you're taking for our fellow physicians. Awesome. Thank you so much. I didn't realize I was a rebel. Uh, you know, until people pointed it out, you know, the word disruptive physician was something that, you know, I was, I was called at a couple points in my life. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, if, if you're not a rebel physician, if you're not a disruptive physician today, um, you know, you're, you're kind of letting things happen, you know? Uh, and I know a lot of people are in situations where they can't be disruptive, so they wish they could be. Um, so I'm, of course, not talking about our colleagues that are in that situation. But if you have, you know, the fortitude and the ability to stand up to what's going on, we need to do it together, you know. Um, and, you know, I was uh, a hospital that I was working at was using my identity, billing under my name, and my identity was essentially stolen. And, you know, it took me four months to fight the hospital. And I I won a small um, settlement agreement with them and they reversed everything. Uh, but during that time, they were trying to strong arm me into signing uh, that I would never talk about this. And I said, no way. This is my story. You know, I did agree to not specify which hospital it was, um, but I'm not going to be silenced. I'm not going to not share that this happened. And, and honestly, like, since I've started the company, dozens of doctors have found me and said that happened to me too, you know? Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is a lot of people are like, well, that was a rare, obscure thing. And that's absolutely right. You know, we're not all going to have our identity stolen, but every single one of us as practicing physicians, unless you're very lucky, uh, is going to experience some form of disempowerment or abuse. Mm -hmm. And how are we going to respond to that? And how are we going to, you know, uh, develop relationships with other physicians who uh, have our support in order to prevent it from happening to others, you know? And that's what HPEC is about. Yeah. And I, I want to go back just a second to highlight on a few things. So I think the comment about it being an obscure thing is is maybe right 10 years ago, but I mean, you were doing locum tenens work, and that's more and more common these days. Or, or doctors in my field, OBGYN, like doing multi, working at multiple hospitals as a laborist. So, I think with where medicine is headed, this sort of thing is more is becoming more and more likely to happen as as For we sure. are kind of spreading ourselves across the country, different hospital systems, and that sort of thing. So, can you just briefly describe? finding out that that happened to you and the kind of um, problems that created for you with regard to your career? For sure. I'm sitting in an emergency department. It was actually a position I, I kind of liked. Um, I'd been working there for a few months as a, on a locums assignment. And the medical director came up to me and he said, we have a problem. This is in the middle of my shift. 
And, you know, I'm an emergency doc. So like my heart starts pounding. I've never had a director come up to me in the middle of a shift and say, we have a problem. And I'm thinking, did I kill somebody? Did, you know, like I, that was where my mind first mm-hmm. went. Um, and he handed me a piece of paper and it was from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid. And it basically said, your privileges to bill for Medicare and Medicaid have been revoked uh, due to practicing medicine without a license. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. I've never practiced medicine without a license. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so what do we need to do? He's like, unfortunately, I need to escort you out. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you can't work here if you aren't allowed to bill for Medicare and Medicaid. And he's like, I have to take over your shift immediately. And, you know, my heart, honestly, like I was super calm in that moment because I was like, great, I didn't kill a patient. Like, cause that was my first worry. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and as I was like walking back to my car, I'm thinking this is probably some weird clerical error. I'm going to call CMS tomorrow and iron this out because I knew I never was practicing with medicine without a license. I was like thinking there must've been a paperwork mistake. And long story short, I spent every day, all day, calling CMS, leaving messages, writing emails, finding names and emails and phone numbers, waiting on hold. And it took almost a week to be able to talk to somebody on the phone about this. Um, And they were very like obscure, not giving me very much information. In the meantime, I also started contacting attorneys because I'm like, if I can't work, I can't eat. Like I have mm-hmm. an apartment I'm paying rent for. I have $300,000 of student loans. Um, and uh, long story short, it took me a month to find an attorney that would take my case on contingency because I wasn't about to start stroking checks to fight a case that I knew was, you know, I, I had, you know, I was right. So okay. yeah, so that's how it actually went down. And um what ended up happening is eventually they sent me a list of patient names that I had supposedly seen and then the dates of service in a state I no longer was licensed in during that time, during those dates of service. And thank goodness, I was actually physically working in another hospital on those very dates in a state across the country. So I immediately went to my schedule and I downloaded my schedule from that day and I said, it's impossible for me to be in two places at once. So obviously this is wrong. And that's when people started moving and realizing mm-hmm. that they were wrong and, you know, things like that. So, um, yeah, so that's how, how it went down. And it did take a lot of negotiation back and forth. You know, yeah. they made it like, oh, whoops-a-daisy. And I'm like, no, whoops-a-daisy. That's not acceptable to me. You're not just going to reinstate me and that's it. You know, you need to pay. Like I've lost all this income. It caused, mm-hmm. you know, damage to my career. I mean, you have to mention gaps in employment and what happened. How am I going to explain these gaps? You know, and I, you know, it's just, so I, I was a little bit of a fighter on it and I'm glad that I was, and I'm glad that I fought, um, you know, to remove the gag clause that they had in the initial um, agreement because I need to be able to talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you I'm so glad that you did that. And it's so funny. I don't know what kind of belief you have about everything happens for a reason, but it's so interesting that that happened to you. You have the gumption and the um the courage really to not only take a stand and fight it, but then turn this into what you've created with HPEC, which is a service to help other physicians. And I I, I want to make sure we spend plenty of time there, but tell me a little bit more about putting the thought that you put into HPEC and if it makes sense first to define what that is and then talk about it. But I really want to talk about, you know, how thoughtful you were with the creation of what you're building with this um, company and what you're creating. And, you know, the input that you received from other physicians and what that exactly looked like in order to create what you what you created now. So I've always been a pretty private person up until a couple of years ago when I started this. And so for the first time in essentially my life, I went on to Facebook and I went on to these private physician Facebook groups. I had never been on these groups before. And I was like, 
oh my God, communities of doctors. Let me see if this has ever happened to any of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I started talking to people and noticing, you know, people were, were like, oh, that didn't happen to me, but this did. And I started learning about how many people had been essentially harmed by things like sham peer review, um, where they're trying to constructively terminate you for whatever reason, because you're not doing as they want. You're the disruptive physician, um, you know, essentially forced to follow protocols. You know, I, I also experienced that in my first job. You know, I left my first job after 90 days. I put in my, my, um, my notice after 30 days working there because none of what they agreed upon in the contract, aside from paying me for my time was, was in place. They made me work weekends. I was seeing 40 plus patients a shift. It was super dangerous. Wow. It was out, it was outrageous. So, you know, that had already happened to me and it's part of why I chose to go into locums, but hearing the stories, it it seemed like every physician had a story. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I had been kind of thinking about this solution, but when I heard the stories of everyone, I started realizing, wow, like I'm, I need to do this. Um, and so I just, I started talking to individual people, you know, private messaging them, like listening to their stories, chatting with them on these specific groups, um, and getting their feedback. Like, what do you think we need to do to fix it? You know? And, and I started taking notes and saying, yep, we can do that with this technology. Yep. We can do that with this technology and making sure that, um, everything was covered, everything that we would need as practicing physicians, according to essentially the survey that I was doing. I didn't realize I was doing essentially customer or user research at the time, but that's essentially what I was doing. And then, you know, I went to people and I said, are you, you know, are you, do you care enough about this to fund it? And, you know, a huge group of people raised their hand and funded the initial design process. I I raised the first, like a little over a hundred thousand dollars from physicians that I met on Facebook, people I didn't know. These aren't, you know, I think a couple of friends invested, but it was mostly people that just, they, you know, my story resonated with them and, you know, they knew that I was building something to kind of solve this problem. And that's how it got started with the physician community, essentially asking for it and saying that they needed it and that they agreed that we needed it. Yeah. And, and I think, it's a good time now to describe it in more solid terms what we're talking about. And um, then we can maybe get a little bit more granular. So essentially, HPEC is a solution to everyday problems that physicians face. And I think this is a, such an exciting venture because physicians are in control. Like physicians who know the shit that's happening to physicians are the ones that are thinking of solutions. And I just don't know if there are companies out there doing what this, what HPEC is is going to be able to do that have the ability to change how physicians practice medicine forever. And that is huge. This is a huge deal. So if you don't mind talking about HPEC, what it is, what it can do, all of the things that you have built in response to the needs of your peers and our peers. Awesome. And I have a big smile on my face because it is huge. You know, when we're able to execute on this, people will have, people will be amazed. Um, You know, so physicians need a place to communicate and organize in a censorship free space. Um, You know, these individual Facebook groups are great, but they are opened by one person. And that one person gets to control who's allowed in. They can kick you out. They can delete your posts. um, And they get to decide who gets to speak. And that doesn't work well for uh, a diverse group of people that are taking care of the entire U.S. population. I mean, let's be serious. Like, we are the ones keeping this country alive. Without us, everybody dies, period. I mean, we all die eventually anyway. Um, But without physician care, you know, it'd be catastrophic. So, you know, we need to be able to collaborate and communicate about patient care, um, about new and innovative things that are coming up, about new viruses and pandemics that are coming and how we are 
seeing patients present and how we're treating them. And we need to be able to do that free from censorship and third-party interference. And unfortunately, Facebook doesn't provide that. It's the opposite of that, as are all centralized platforms. So one of the things that the physician community said we needed, um, they agreed that we needed, is a space for us to communicate without censorship. And so we actually have a protocol that we developed internally that's a self-moderation protocol uh, that means basically the community of physicians moderates itself. Uh, there's no one person that gets to decide. And the way it happens is through voting. When you post or you communicate on the platform, uh, you can flag a post if you feel like it violates um, certain guidelines. Uh, and if enough doctors feel that a post should be flagged, um, you know, it's not going to shut that post down because those doctors could just be attacking that one person because they don't like them. Uh, what ends up happening is that post gets funneled to a randomly selected physician who has never seen the post, who is not connected to the poster at all, and who's never read the post. And they say, you've been chosen to moderate a community post. Do you accept before they even get to see it? And they either say yes or no. And if they say yes, they then get to see the post and decide if the moderators who are saying that it should be flagged, if it actually should be flagged and suppressed. Now, the reason that that's important is because, and, and it's more than one moderator that's going to decide also. It's not just one person. And so essentially, it has to be a large pe group of people who agree that this is shouldn't be there. So for example, you're posting protected patient information or uh, you know promoting violence in some way you know, it, it essentially creates a space where you know that what you're reading is true, it's authentic, and it's not being censored. Uh, and I think that that's what we need. And the only way that that's possible is through decentralized identity. Um, so the other features that we have is onboarding onto our platform, you are verified as a doctor. So we have uh, an automatic verification process where only if you have an MD or a DO and you've been to at least one year of residency are you allowed in. And then we also verify your ID with a government-issued ID. So there's no other platform out there that actually verifies that you're a doctor and actually verifies that you are who you say you are. Ours is the only one. So when you're in there and you have a pediatrician having a, an opinion on how to treat croup, you actually know that they actually are a pediatrician. Um, and you can see how long they've been practicing. Are they a resident? Are they 40 years in practice? Um, we organize people by specialty and state only. Um, eventually, we might start doing other groups if people want to do groups. But right now, it's it's an automated system. If you have a state license here, you go there. If you have a residency in this, you go there. And that's it. Um, so it's just a unique way for us to organize and communicate. And then there's a general group where everybody is, you know? Um, so that's the community portion. And so the reason that we developed this and why it's so important is this is a space for us to not only coordinate clinical care and share clinical information and optimize patient care and essentially deliver better care than the current, you know, medical industrial complex, vertically integrated insurance model influence system, but we can also communicate and govern ourselves around important issues, whether they be, you know, internal issues within our workplace, contract negotiation, lobbying efforts at the state or federal level, etc. So that's the community portion of what, what we've built. Can I ask a few questions before you go to yeah. the next thing? Okay. So the first question, or the, it really it's a comment. So essentially what the community aspect is, is all the Facebook groups that there, that exist, except for that they're all together and there's no one person or group of people who are in charge or seen as quote unquote leader. There's no hierarchy. It is truly a collaborative group where everyone is equal. There's no kind of made up Facebook hierarchy within community, right? There's no, there's no unilateral decision-making about what is appropriate, what's not. Correct. All that kind of stuff. So it removed that. So it's basically um, social media community in a more equitable, 
and supportive way. And what it also sounds like to me is what many of the specialty colleges are doing, for example, like ACOG, American College of OBGYN, has like forums for different OBGYNs based on where they're practicing and how many years out there are, right? Um, I'm sure other specialties have these, like they try to have these forums that are collegial. Um, It's hard to take off. That's hard to take off, right? Because it's not as easy to go into this forum and you can't just like, it's easier to log into Facebook and ask in the OBGYN group to. And you're also in ACOG. So what if you have a problem with something ACOG is doing? Yeah. Exactly. So the, this has really removed the barriers of where physicians seek community and makes it safer, easier, and more collaborative. That's what it sounds like to me. Is that right? Correct. It's an egalitarian, democratic. I call it a digital guild. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's really a DAO. Uh, a DAO is it stands for decentralized autonomous organization, and it is exactly what it says. It, it's not centralized, no censorship, um, no one person owns or controls it. Um, you know, autonomous, we need our autonomy. It is an autonomous space for you to be a self-sovereign physician. Mm-hmm. Um, and then organization, it's a way for us to organize. And before we move on, could you just define what you mean by decentralized identity? Like your identity as a physician, like what exactly do you mean by that? Um, so this is where a lot of people kind of start just kind of tuning out mm-hmm. because I'm talking about technology and they're like, no, I don't want to hear about technology. <laughs> yes, you know? guilty for sure. <laughs> but, but there are new protocols. So I'm, you know, I was born before the internet. You know what I mean? So I remember the world before the internet. I remember the world before smartphones and cell phones. Um, I didn't even get a Facebook account until medical school and I barely used it until I started this company. So, you know, what we're not realizing as physicians is that the digital age was born very recently. And in the same way that the Industrial Revolution and electricity brought all kinds of new ventures, Internet is bringing similar types of, of ventures. And we are still very, very, very early. And, you know, the same way that LED lights exist today, but they didn't exist way back, you know, when the Edison light bulb was invented. There's new protocols over the internet that allow us to communicate in ways that we weren't able to communicate before. And decentralized identity is one of those new protocols. And so this isn't something I'm developed. Um, It's been developed by a very smart group of of physicians. If you want to learn more about decentralized identity, you can go um, to the World Wide Web Consortium, wc3.org, or the Decentralized Identity Foundation because that's where these protocols were born. Now, right now, if you want to communicate with um, a fellow physician over Facebook, for example, you type a message in and Facebook has software servers all over the world that essentially copy all these messages and keep them and tag them to your profile. So they're starting to kind of create a database about you, your behaviors, your thoughts, the words that you use in your posts. And then they target you with ads based on that, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Based on your location and things like that. So they essentially are commoditizing our data. And then there's a surveillance capitalism that's happening over our behavior. Now, in the medical world, what people don't realize, when you log into the EMR, they're doing the same thing. They're watching your prescribing patterns, your referral patterns, how you document, how many patients stayed in the hospital for less than 30 days, for your cases that are similar versus your other colleague, um, also in a centralized platform. Now, decentralized identity protocols uh, allow you as an individual to securely message another individual and have that data transferred from one person to the other with no centralized storage of that information. So within our application, for example, we enable the DIDCOM protocol, which is Decentralized Identity Communication Protocol. So some people have used Signal, which is a secure messaging um, application, and they have um, a double ratchet technique that essentially like puts your message out into the ether. So your message is floating around somewhere, but they don't tie it to your identity. And that's what makes it a secure message. Uh, with DIDCOM protocol, you have a secure enclave that when you onboard onto the HPEC app, 
you essentially create your identity wallet. And in that wallet, you have a secure enclave with all of your data. So the messages that are sent to you are stored in your enclave that only you can see and only you can control. Um, similarly for the person you're messaging. Now, we also have a space for you to store digital copies of your credentials. You know, if you think about it, your credentials are what make you a doctor. You know, uh, without your medical degree, you're not a doctor. Without your medical license, you can't practice. So um, with decentralized identity protocols, not only do you own any communication that you have between you and your colleagues, you can also own, own tangible, valuable digital assets that define who you are as a human and allow you to control your professional destiny. Um, now, just imagine a world where, you know, there's a job opportunity part time and, you know, you want to pick up some work and you go and you interview and you can start the next day because your digitally already verifiable credentials are in your wallet. And when you share them, they're instantaneously verified because they came directly from your medical school and the data that your medical school actually issued those to you is there. So um, this is a very unique opportunity for us to essentially own our professional brand, own our right to work, own our right to communicate without censorship and not be not have people capitalizing over our protected private conversations, whether they be with each other, which is where the HPAC app, app is at now, or eventually potentially with our patients, which is where this could go. Okay, so th this is um, decentralized identity. Will you really? It is tempting to gloss over it, but it is fundamentally the future of our profession and, and our own personal ability to well, practice medicine. So right now, is there any other way for us to do anything that's decentralized? right now well so cryptocurrency so in the same way that we can have little pieces of data about our the fact that we graduated from medical school on this date and our medical degree is from this medical school um cryptocurrency is also transmitted in this way but they don't use decentralized identity they use cryptocurrency protocols but mm -hmm. there's similar peer-to-peer -peer protocols where one person with one wallet that they control can transfer currency into somebody else's wallet that they control and there's no centralized bank or credit card or PayPal account or Venmo mm -hmm. account, just like having any understanding of that transaction or having any control over the, da the data. So uh, they both can use blockchain protocols or distributed ledger technology protocols in order for them to work. But decentralized identity is unique in the fact that you're not actually giving somebody your medical license so that they can go practice medicine. You are just sharing your data and authenticating proof that you are who you say you are. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a different protocol, but it uses similar tech to crypt cryptocurrency. But professionally, how we practice medicine right now or how we communicate with other physicians, besides like maybe picking up the phone, right? Because there's no central control of that. Like there's really not any way for physicians to do their work or communicate with other physicians in this kind of way without someone or some company taking it for their own needs. Is that right? Correct. Am I understanding this right? Okay. Correct. This is why I love the phone. Yeah. So so I think what is easy for us to take to um we don't always think about the fact that when we're on Facebook, for example, and you know, posting anonymously about who who knows what, or asking for advice on um, where to invest money, for example, we're having these conversations and we're borrowing some something that's you know, in the internet, a space in the internet that someone else owns has access to, even if the community is quote-unquote private it's all a ruse right and i think that we've kind of been like lulled into this false sense of security about our private facebook groups and posting anonymously but the reality is that someone knows that and someone is using that information to try to sell you something or 
you know, who knows in the future, in the next 20 years, what that information is going to be used for, right? And I think that these are things that they seem so run of the mill because it's normal now, but um, I, I really want to bring attention to this because the fact that there is this option coming that we can communicate and collaborate with other physicians without someone else benefiting for themselves is it's something that we have to take advantage of in what you've created. I agree. And I, and I don't you. want to get too too lost here, but I just think that that's um, as, as difficult as it is to understand. I think the more that you really think about it, you're like, oh my gosh, like it's email. It's like you said, it's EMR. It's everything you do on social media and you're not control you're not in control of any of it right you know all. you have a gmail account and google they can read any email that you've ever yeah. written all of this stuff is discoverable in court because even if you delete it it can be retrieved because yeah. google still has it so yeah. you know and it's really interesting you know sergey sergey brin and larry page they tried to sell google for a million bucks in 1997 and nobody wanted to buy it um, you know, and that was not that long ago, 1997, yeah. I was in high school. So if we really think about that, Google was worth, wasn't even worth a million bucks, you know, mm -hmm. 20, 30 years ago, not even, you know, that should open our eyes to the possibility of these new technologies, mm -hmm. being able to develop them and own them ourselves collectively as a community. Yeah. So one more question, and then we can get into that to other things, but, um, Right now, because you talked about like it's your own digital wallet of your credentials. Like, where are our credentials? You know what I'm saying? Like, I understand. Like, we understand. Sure. We have to get privileges at a hospital. It's a huge pain in the ass, right? Because we have to fill out an application. We have to get one hospital confirm the other hospital. Or we have to go through this third party who to like go back to our medical school. And all this other freaking bullshit, right? That excuse my language, yeah. but it's so it's so annoying. And then the state, depending on what state you're in, it's like I don't know where it is. It's paper or it's electronic. So today, 2023, who owns our credentials, and so what would it look like that's different? So what's really interesting is legally, according to FERPA, F-E-R-P-I-P-A, it's a regulation that's kind of like HIPAA for our educational training. Um, our medical school and residency training, because it's funded by the federal government, is protected in the way that we have to have ownership over who's allowed to see that. And that's why we have had the administrative burden of repeatedly giving people permission to check because we are the ones that legally have to give that permission. Mm -hmm. So when you say who owns it, it's really the medical school and the residency program for our med medical school and residency certificates. Um, but, you know, I actually recently did a video for people who were asking, like, how did you, you know, find out about your identity? How can I know about if it's being done to me? You know, we can go on, for example, Picos, which is a place where you can see Medicare, Medicaid, um, who's billing under your name for Medicare and Medicaid. And a lot of people who have watched that video or, or heard me talk about this in the past are like blown away to find out that like some random nurse practitioner that they never met is using their credentials to like practice medicine without, you know, their knowledge or consent and jobs that they previously thought they had withdrew all their credentials from still have them signed up, you know? Um, so the answer is our credentials are all over the place. They're in centralized systems controlled by other people other than us. You know, a lot of people are like, well, doesn't CAQH do this when, you know, CAQH is again centralized. When we log in, we have to essentially upload all of our stuff there and I'm sure many of us have also had jobs ask us, just give me your CHQH login and we'll take care of it. We're basically like giving away all of our professional like rights when we do that. And it's super scary. Um, but it's so cumbersome. We're like, yeah, here, take my login. Thank God I don't have to think about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, so, you know, other credentialing companies, there's hundreds of them out there. Um, you know, they basically are helping to manage your credentials in a centralized fashion, not controlled by you, where they have the data. Okay, perfect. So maybe this will lead into the, the next act, aspect of HPEC as far when it comes to 
credentialing and that kind of thing. Maybe that's the next best place to go. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, what we don't realize is everything that we do has become digitized in the last 30 years. So our MPI number, you know, we can log into the CMS database and check our MPI number. We can log into state licensing uh, websites and check that our license is valid. Same thing with our DEAs, but they're all over the place. Um, you know, but a lot of these entities have protocols where they can uh, integrate protocols into systems like the one that we're building and actually authenticate this stuff automatically. And so while we're trying to build this future decentralized system where your medical school actually issues you a permanently verifiable medical degree that you own, store, and keep in your wallet, which our technology currently has the capability of doing this, um, we can hit these public APIs and have permanent uh, verification through these public APIs also. And so we have the capability to do that as well. So long story short, our system is the only system where you have a secure enclave that's yours, where that public API will be giving you your information that you can then own and control. All of the other systems out there, why would they give this to us? They don't want us to have control. They don't want us to be empowered. They want to control us. And so mm-hmm. we're building something where you control your information and you can control your professional destiny. Yeah. And it's a big deal because what's the reason they want to control us? It's because we have to pay them. That's how they make their money right? You have to pay them to please gather all my things for me and send it to the state so that I can get licensed in the state. That's how that's we're we're funding these people to do things that essentially are giving our autonomy away. And then we are, you know, having to wait for someone to get, you know, put a stamp on And then we have to do it again. We have to keep doing it. So it's not something that's permanent. It's not something that's done once. Like, why do we have to verify my medical degree again? Like, I went to medical school Mm -hmm. once. Like, it's not, that'll never go away. Well, the answer is we haven't had the technology protocols that allow for this permanently verifiable system to exist until decentralized identity was born. Yeah. So when this is in full effect, Mm -hmm. what would it look like? to get a license in another state compared to how it looks now. So this is a very interesting question because there's a lot of discussion about uh, the Interstate Medical Licensing Compact um, versus Interstate Medical Licensing Reciprocity. So as a founder of this company, I personally am more of a fan of of, uh, Interstate Medical Licensing Reciprocity, where if you have a license in Alabama, New York will accept an Alabama license and give you an automatic New York state license as long as you have a license in Alabama. Um, It's like the same thing as a driver's license. You can drive with your Florida driver's license in California. No problem. So um, as far as licensing goes, every state requires fingerprints. You know, so one of the companies that reached out to us wants to create digital credentials of your fingerprint so that you can put it in your wallet. So when you apply for cross-state licensure, you can use it as many times as you want digitally and it's proof and it's yours. And the medical boards can accept it instantaneously and you know streamline the, the medical license application process. Um, as a guild, as a community of doctors, I think we could collectively push for each state medical board to create reciprocity uh, for each other where we only have to apply once and you know, state like state licensing boards have collaborative agreements with each other. That's something I think that we can do. Um, but that would take a lot of organization. And that's part of what the HPAC app also does. Yeah. So as we're kind of building this definition of what HPAC is, what it sounds like is that the community is really the foundation of what will eventually become physicians truly owning medicine again, which is something that we just don't have right now. Um, so let's go to the next thing. I don't want to get, I don't know if I'm, if I'm making it hard for you to explain this, but what, what else can you mention? (laughs) Well, I mean, so owning medicine. So the reason first owning our professional brand and owning our digital credentials and owning our right to communicate with each other and govern ourselves in a censorship free space, the reason why that foundation is required in order for us to own, as you said, the healthcare system 
um, is because, you know, we need to know that everybody who's there is a doctor. We need to have a way to communicate. We need to have a way to vote on things and to decide amongst each other what's important for this community versus that community, what needs to be done now versus later, how are we going to fund this effort versus this effort, you know. Um, but then once that foundational community is is created, we can essentially build a referral machine that mm-hmm. we own and control. You know, I know so many brilliant, super specialist doctors, um, you know, who just are really, really good at their niche thing. And it just says, you know, for example, OBGYN. So like, on the outside looking in and like according to the insurance company, whatever vertically integrated system they work for, they're just an OBGYN. But some people are just masters at detecting uterine cancer, for example, mm-hmm. or masters at this very specific type of surgery. Or, you know, there's, you know, a couple of weeks ago I was in New York and I met one of the only doctors in the country, there's maybe five or 10 who uh, are specialists in neurofibromatosis. Mm-hmm. So this is something we all learned about in med school. There's only like five or 10 of these doctors in the entire country. So, you know, you are a, you know, family practice doctor working in a rural place. And one of your, you know, the families in your DPC practice gives birth to a child with this, you know, debilitating condition. Do they have to move to one of these big cities? No, we can do telemedicine. We can do curbside consults. We can do so many things with this tool that can allow us to coordinate care in like such a more automated, streamlined, and you know, optimized way than the current system, because the current system is built to make money off of the pain and suffering of patients, and we, the physicians, are built to keep people well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and and I think right now it's it's so distracting. Everything else we have to deal with is so distracting. So, it, when it comes to insurance companies and the burden of that. What's the vision as far as what HPEC can do to help to move towards not being under the thumb and the control of insurance companies? So one of the reasons that private practice is being decimated is because of facilities fees, um, because the solo private practice doctor gets paid way less than the hospital gets paid for the same procedure. you know, Dr. Badia recently just put out a post about this. He's no longer taking Medicare and Medicaid because he can't he can't keep his doors open because his fees are so low, but the hospitals receive facilities fees. So imagine if we could collectively organize and negotiate these insurance contracts to be paid fairly. You know, mm-hmm. that's something that we can only do if we have a collaborative tool to do that. Imagine if we uh, coordinated to create legislation that any time that we spend on prior authorization needs to be compensated. That's another thing that we can do. There's a lot of things that we can do, but we can't do anything unless we have a collective space of organization. Yeah, and the physicians in silos are really are what keeping us from having a system that we want to have for our patients. And I think that um, the toxic medical system, like I like to talk about, is really, there's no benefit for it to allow us to communicate with one another or collaborate. And it's really best to keep us as busy as possible so that we don't have the time or wherewithal to come together and and create something by talking to other physicians, which if you knew that 10 physicians in each other state felt exactly the same way as you, you would be really lit up by that. That would be very motivating for you to realize that, okay, this feels like too big for me in Georgia to take care of. But if I knew that I had a community of thousands and thousands of physicians who there's at least 20,000 who think like me and I have them in my phone, I mean, that's magic. That is pure magic. And it's the, the medical system has never had anything like this ever before. Right. Yep. So the the founder of IndyDocs, which is a South Carolina Independent Doctors Association, uh, chatted with me last week, and they were able to defeat the certificate of needs laws in South Carolina. And they did it with an organization of a few hundred independent doctors who decided to really work hard on this one thing. 
And he was contacting me because he wants to have thousands of doctors. He doesn't want just the, the few hundred. You know, there's another doctor, Dr. Roy Stoller, who, you know, was talking about back in, I think, the 90s when tort reform was coming through New York, the doctors went on strike for one day. And in one day, every single thing that they wanted, they got, mm. you know? And so it just takes collaboration and organization in order to get the things that we need. And like you said, when you're in a silo, it doesn't work. It's, it's mm. nothing can change. Yeah. So what else are we missing about HPAC? Did we cover everything? What else can you tell us about it? Well, I want to share, um, you know, the decentralized identity and the credentialing piece is symbiotic with the organization and the community. Because if you're consulting with somebody, you need to know what their specialty is, right? Um, mm -hmm. But importantly, when I was doing that, you know, customer research that I didn't know it, that's what I was doing when I first was considering starting this company. One of the things that physicians kept saying over and over and over again is, you know, I'm sick of stroking checks to medical societies, national and regional medical associations who aren't doing anything that I care about or who aren't fighting for the things that I care about. You know, specifically like the facilities fees, the scope of practice stuff, the prior authorization stuff, like where were our medical societies when these laws were becoming, you know, enacted, these regulations were becoming, where were they for advocating for us? They were, in my opinion, they were creating it. They were colluding with the very systems that created this and they were self-serving, you know, their own interests. And so doctors were sick of stroking checks to these organizations and they didn't want to have to pay. They're like, we've paid enough. And I totally agree. You know, we paid for our, our medical education. Many of us are in a lot of debt. So this is part of why I built the credentialing solution, not just to identify us so we can organize, but something that can become a revenue generating tool so that essentially this whole guild can be funded. Now, you know, imagine a world where we don't have to pay anything. I don't have to sell your data to marketing companies where they're going to target you with ads. Um, you know, and essentially the revenue from the credentialing model can return money to the shareholders who have invested in HPEC, but also can be put into a pool of funds that can essentially run the guild. And if everything works out, we can have money to fund lobbying efforts. We can have money to fund legal aid uh, for physicians who are having a legal issue. Uh, and then we can also pay for the technology because technology costs money. Data storage costs money. Um, you know, software developers cost money. And so I don't want to charge doctors for this. I want, I want physicians to be able to use this tool for free. I want this to be something that essentially funds and feeds itself. Uh, but the only way for that to work is if we all decide to pick it up and use it. Yes. Okay. So, so tell me, tell me again. So I, you know, when I sign up for HPAC on my phone, which I have done, it's free, right? There's no charge to me and it's, it's going to stay that way right now. So, so um, when it's all said and done, I, there's no like subscription for the doctor. There's no fee. So how is this? financially sustainable for the next, you know, 50 years. So what people don't realize is that credentialing is a $5 billion industry. Wow. Um, That's so, physician credentialing alone? Yep. Well, oh, provider credentialing, I think. So it could include other non-physician practitioners, non -physicians. but. 5 know. billion is a lot of money. So. Right. We could and use so, 1 billion of that. <laughs> right. And so if you look at the Forbes um, next billion dollar companies, that they put out in August of this year, uh, there's two credentialing companies on there. Um, and so Forbes agrees that this is a billion dollar industry and they've mm -hmm. chosen two companies that they think could be the next billion dollar companies. Now, uh, both of these companies are doing it in the centralized way. Um, I do believe one either was or still is potentially using decentralized identity protocols, but they don't have a physician facing wallet where you own your credentials. Um, and you know, they're working for the industry and they're not a physician owned company. They're owned by whoever the founders were. So long story short, Forbes believes this is a billion dollar opportunity. And I believe that it's a billion dollar opportunity and we can use that money to fund, you know, the technology solution that we're building and to keep it not only alive, but thriving. You know, mm -hmm. we have a $4.2 trillion healthcare system 
And if you think about it, with the stroke of our pen or today our keyboard, you know, 80% of the flow of that capital is directed by our decisions. Will they get this $10,000 medication or this $1,000 medication? Will they get six weeks of physical therapy or are they going to get their knee replacement tomorrow? Are they going to stay an extra day in the ICU at $15,000 a day or are we going to put them on the floor today? All of these are our decisions. And when the system, the toxic medical industry, as you call it, the medical industrial complex, as I call it, realized how much control we have as doctors and how much trust our patients have for us, they developed these regulations and protocols to essentially bog us down so that they can control our behavior, our prescribing patterns, our referral patterns, watch uh, and do surveillance capitalism over the EMR and scrape the data and decide what they're going to cover and whether they're going to increase the premiums for people of this age category because they were hospitalized more often. That's what they're doing right now. They're commoditizing on the pain and suffering of our patients and finding ways to put a downward pressure on our reimbursement and our wages while also giving our patients as little as possible. And we all feel it. This is part of why we have this moral injury situation happening, why we have burnout and physician suicides, you know, and- Mm -hmm. We got we to gotta start doing something about it. It's not going to get better unless we no. do something. No, it's not going to get better. So all that to say is the physicians aren't paying for HPEC financially. The money is coming from companies, essentially, to fuel this. And that's how it will, who will, how it will stay. That's the goal. Yes. Okay. That's the goal. So... The great news, I think, is that we all have this wonderful opportunity to be a part of this and help to make it happen. And we don't have to think about decentralized identity every day. It sounds a little bit complicated like it does to me. So um, I would love for you to tell me about what, you know, the process of the of the of the business and the and the funding that you're in now so that physicians can get on board. Because I'm sure that they're going to want to after hearing what this is going to be doing for us in the future. Awesome. So when you look at this Forbes list of credentialing companies, you'll notice that they were funded, you know, $40 million, $80 million. Now, the reason that these companies are on the Forbes list is because they have all this money to develop this technology. This technology isn't something that's cheap to develop. Building these protocols, maintaining the system, preventing it from breaking down, Um, the software developers to make it feel streamlined to automate the system. If we integrate artificial intelligence into automating the onboarding and workforce mobility solution, which is our goal, we have to build it, right? And so we're raising capital on Start Engine and we're doing a crowdfund. So crowdfunding is a very unique investment opportunity where anybody can invest. You know, before 2016, in order to invest in a startup, you had to be an accredited investor, meaning you had to have a certain amount of wealth, and a certain amount of income. And you know, even though most physicians actually do qualify as accredited investors, there's a lot of friction to the paperwork process of that. And so right now on Start Engine, and only for a few more days, uh, you can go and invest in HPEC and own a piece of this technology, own shares in a company in the same way that you invest things in things on the stock market. You know, this is like a tiny IPO, it's a little public offering of stock to anybody that wants to purchase this. Now, we are really only sharing this with doctors because we want to keep this physician owned. Um, but there's a lot of people who care about patients who have invested. You know, I'd say there was like maybe 15 people uh, on the recent, when I recently looked at who's invested so far, that are people that just care about this and they want to see it change too. You know, our patients are suffering and they want to support doctors. Um, but this is a chance for us as a physician community to own it ourselves. You know, and I'm, you know, I'm asking for physicians who understand how big of an idea this is, uh, who can to invest three to five thousand dollars if they can. You know, the cost of one credentialing event is three thousand dollars. We spend sixteen hundred dollars per doctor per year on average for credentialing. Now, a lot of people will say, I don't pay for credentialing. My hospital does. Well, unfortunately, they're taking it out of what would be your salary. So no matter what you're paying for, whether it's indirectly or not. Also, independent doctors who are cash only, oh, I don't have to do credentialing. I have my own independent practice. Well, you still have to keep up your licenses and you still have to keep up your DEAs 
And I know I have to renew my DEA this month and it's like 800 bucks. So um, the DEA and the medical licensing boards, they want a solution to this. There's a lot of friction for them. They don't want to be responding to these, you know, millions of calls. So they're actually looking at these kinds of solutions. The state of California and Louisiana is looking into decentralized identity. Um, you know, the uh, American Association of Medical Colleges has Medviquitous, and they're looking into decentralized identity. Chase Bank is using decentralized identity. So this is coming with or without us. And this is a rare opportunity only for a few more days for us to invest and own a piece of a company that's being built for us so that we can restore our autonomy. And when this becomes the engine that fuels healthcare in the future, the physicians who have invested in this company now, what does that look like for them in the future? Not only for the autonomy that it's giving them professionally, but financially as well. Right. So right now, shares are 19 cents a share. So if we become one of these multi-billion dollar companies, those shares could be worth hundreds. When you become. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, those shares could be worth hundreds. And so, you know, I'm not allowed to speculate and make any promises because this is an early startup. But I obviously believe in this. I wouldn't have quit my, you know, 300 plus K a year job as a doctor to do this, living essentially off the kindness of strangers. I'm actually living in the guest house of one of our investors right now as she's doing it as a gift to me so that I don't have to spend money on housing so that I can raise money in peace, you know? And so this is our chance to own the future, to build a future, to build a system where we lead and we collaborate with each other and where one person doesn't control anything. Yeah. And I, I think that in the business world, and unless you specifically also have a business degree, this is feels foreign to you as far as this startup and creating a company because physicians, we you know, we go to medical school and we fund ourselves, you know, we take out loans, half a million dollars in student loans is what I have, right? And it's all very elusive. And what we what we're spit out, and then we have a job, right? And it's like, oh, the job is just there. But in business world, the startup thing happens all of the time. And there are people all over the world investing in startups for the benefit of their own lighting their own pockets. And I'm, there's nothing wrong with that. That's wonderful to do. It's exciting. It's fun. However, this is so much more than that because this is something that is created by doctors, for doctors, no intention of ever charging doctors, and is going to allow us to fix so many of the problems that healthcare is causing us right now. And we're anxious and we're overwhelmed and we're dying by suicide at alarming rates. And I don't think it's hard to it's hard to really understand what medicine could be like when when so many of the burden, so much of the burden of what we're dealing with on a day to day basis, with other people owning what we do, controlling how we practice medicine. We don't. There's so many of us who don't even know what that kind of world would look like. So I really would encourage you to be a part of this with. With with us because this is this is a really big deal and I'm I'm really excited um, to kind of see this see this through with Yulia. So thank you so much for for all your time. Thanks for giving me a chance to share it. And you know this is our chance. You know this is an opportunity, and I, you know I look forward to you guys joining us. Um, tell us that you have a workshop coming up, or there's a replay. Gives is there. Um, information I'm going to leave in the episode details today about more information about HPEC, all of that stuff. Is there um, information you want to give verbally here now as well about that? Yeah. So our website is hpec.io. If you go there before the end of the crowdfund, you can click invest now and it will bring you directly to the start ended website. You can invest as little as $500. There have been people that have invested $25,000 on this campaign. Um, you can use a credit card. You can use ACH transfer. And uh, for those of you who want to ask me questions personally um, and who want to kind of hear more of the nitty gritty about how this works, we are having two webinars this week before the close of the crowdfund um, on the 29th early um, on Tuesday and Thursday this week. So we will put links in uh, you know, the show notes so that you guys can join us for that if you want to come join and learn more. 
Awesome. Well, thank you again. It was great talking to you tonight. Thank you. Hey there. Just wanted to take some quick time here to let you know that if you have been thinking about doing a podcast and it feels really overwhelming and you like the idea of podcasting, but the other stuff like the editing and production feels too overwhelming, I wanted to let you know about the people who now edit and produce my podcast, which is Pretty Easy Podcasts. And for the first year and a half of my podcast, I was doing everything myself. And I had tried to contract out editing and it was really got some really, really bad results. So I was hesitant to try again, but I'm so glad that I did because working with Pretty Easy Podcasts has been so amazing. They can get your shows recorded, posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. You could record from home, your office or the park or really anywhere. And then they totally cater to your schedule and It's just so easy to work with them. I cannot say enough good things. So if it's been on your mind to do a podcast, then definitely check out Pretty Easy Podcast at prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. It's super affordable and it's so fun working with them. So definitely check it out.